Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. See, what happens is if I don't set my stuff out before, like the night before, I forget it. So, I set it out. We're Romans 5, chap- yeah, Romans chapter 5, working our way down through this section of Scripture. And uh, we still got a couple of weeks left in the, this is, this is probably one of those pivotal chapters, really, in Romans. Um, it's one of those things that has a tremendous amount of teaching and theology for us. And what it is basically is the results of our justification. Okay, if you're justified by faith, what does that look like? What produces? And we said, first of all, it produces peace with God. The war is over. We're no longer God's enemy. Again, people say, I'm not God's enemy. Well, you are. God's at war with you. You may not be at war with God, but he's certainly at war with you. We have peace. We have introduction. We have access into his presence, which is sort of a big deal. We actually get to go into God's presence. See, back in those days, you just didn't make an appointment with the king and go in to see the king. You had to be introduced. You had a way to get in there. We have access to God. And we boast in hope. We have hope. We also boast in our afflictions. Why? Because they produce character, and character produces endurance. And endurance does not disappoint. How do we get to be a strong Christian? You go through trials and you come out the other side. And it says the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. But ice bucket challenge, think of that. It's just been poured out. It's not... I was thinking about this on the way to church today. God is not the God of um, a rationed approach to things, right? He doesn't give you just enough to get you through. It's an abundance. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. His love is poured out in our hearts. It's not just doled out. And we're going to see that as we go down through here for verse 6, while we were still weak, we didn't have any strength. We were without strength. The idea there of weakness is that of being weak, of unable to do anything. Think of Think of being on your deathbed and being able to barely raise your head. That's, a, that's the, sort of the image here. You have no power in and of yourself to do anything. You just lay there. Christ died for not the good people, right? The ungodly. Christ didn't die for good people. He died for the wicked people. Think of the most reprehensible person you can think of. Would you die for them? The most reprehensible, evil, wicked, gross, revolting, turn-your-stomach person, would you die for them? 
And that's what God did. That's what Christ did for us. He didn't die for us when we were good people. And you know, that goes back. You know, some people say, "Well, I'll get my act together, then I'll come to Christ." You don't. No amount of effort is going to get your act together good enough to make you unrevolting to Him. You're a sinner. There aren't any. There aren't any good people. We compare ourselves with each other and think, I'm, I'm pretty good, but you're not. You're the ungodly. And he just makes enough for hardly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. If you've got a righteous man, there are people that will die for that person. And perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. We were in total rebellion against God. We hated God. Later on, we're going to read in Romans 8, the flesh hates God. The natural man hates God. They hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. They despise him. And if that is what God did, he died for us. Now, one of the things, and this sort of touches on here, is there's this idea in Christianity that God would never have his son die for us. That's abusive. God the Father would never do that. God would never send his son to die for us. Rather, Christ was just a good example. What's this per se? He died for me. He took my place. This is not him being a good example. He died for me. Became sin for me. Now, in essence, he did not become sin. You understand that. But he took upon him the sin of the world, just as that animal, that goat, or that lamb in the Old Testament took upon it, in a way, the sin of the people. In essence, Christ did not become a sinner. That's what the Word of Faith boys tell you, that in essence, he became sinful. No, he did not, in essence, become sinful. He became unclean in the sense that the sins of the all of us, our sins, were put on him. To the point that who turned his back on Christ? God the Father did. Think about that one. For three hours, God turned the lights out. He became sin for me. He took my place. He died for me. And because he died for me, this is where we're starting today, much more. Now, Anybody do their homework? How many much mores are in this passage? Huh? Nobody gets a gold star. I'm using, I'm, you can use the ESV, there's the King James has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's several much mores here in this whole passage. Depending on what version you're looking at. But in the Greek there is much more. It's the same thing down in the Greek text. 
But this is the first much more. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Having been now justified. And if I remember, verse 9. Verse 9. Much more is Palu Milan. Much more. Much greater. And then having been justified, we are in a state of being declared righteous. What is justification? That's a word we toss around a lot. The Greek diakosune means to be acquitted, to be declared righteous, to be declared okay. It's really a forensic term. When the gavel came down on O.J. Simpson, he was declared not guilty. Was he guilty? Yes. I agree with you on that. Yes, he was. But as far as the law was concerned, let's write this down. I want everybody, it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's 9.50.46 on, no. As far as the law was concerned, he was not guilty. simplified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's more than that. See, we use that around. Well, it's just as if I had never done it. No. Whether you did it or not is irrelevant. It's that you're declared you haven't done it. Right? You might have done it. But justified means you're declared righteous. The gavel of God came down and says, acquitted. On what basis have you been acquitted? Christ took my place. He paid the law's penalty for me. And because he did, I have been permanently justified. It's not a reversible justification. God does not say acquitted, and then later on he says, well, we're going, to redo, we're going to reopen the case here. We have protections built into our legal system that that doesn't happen, called double jeopardy. If O.J. goes through that trial, that criminal trial, and he's declared not guilty, you don't do another criminal trial. Now, you have to all the civil trials, that's different, but the point is you're not going to be retried for that same crime. God said, before the bar of God, Alan Schaefer, you are not guilty. Not because <laughs> you're not guilty, but because somebody paid the legal penalty for your sin. You are hereby acquitted before the bar of God. And because I have been, and how, how is that justification done? By what? His blood. Now, let's understand what we mean by blood. It's not the physical fluid. It's his death, right? And God built that into the Old Testament sacrifice, right, with the animals. Was it the physical fluid of the animals that propitiated the wrath of God in the Old Testament? It was faith. It was faith, but the, that was shown by the shedding of blood. But it was the death of the animal. I couldn't go drain a quart of blood off the lamb and take it into the Holy of Holies and be okay, right? 
The lamb had to die. That's the point. Christ had to die. It wasn't, I could just take a little bit of his blood and I'm all good. It's amazing how, many, how much sacrifice they had to do. Mm -hmm. How many bulls and lambs and sheep and goats and does were sacrificed for the different sins it, and different offerings. It was a bloody religion. Right. They had a lot of Levites. Well, it took a lot of Levites. Look at when Solomon dedicated the temple, how many animals were killed. A lot. In fact, it was so, so bad that they said the river, the little Kidron Valley there, ran red with the blood of the animals that were slaughtered in this thing. We, we're, we're sort of, we're, we got an antiseptic view of this. And then the other thing is when they went in to take, take, out, take the lands, Mm -hmm. Promise of them, they were to kill everyone. Yeah, every living being and, in, in the human being, they've got to take some of them. Yeah, and so you know, a lot of people say, "Well, that's horrible, horrible for God to do that." Well, number one, who gave them life? Does God have the right to take life at any time for any reason without question? Does he? Doesn't he? And what kind of people were these in the land? They weren't worshiping. They were wicked to the core. I, I remember watching the TV special on some of the stuff they dug up in Canaanite. They said it's so bad that they don't give tours of it. It's just too gross for people to handle. They, they can't even give tours of this stuff. It is just wicked to the core. Just evil, evil, evil. They can't even, they can't even. In fact, some of the tours there, they, they say that you've got to sort of sign a disclaimer. It's so bad. That's what they had back then. I'm confused about that, though, because there are no more sacrifices, so why is it still gross then? The blood's dried up. No, no, no. I'm talking about the, the images, the pictures, the depictions oh. on the wall, the, the boss reliefs, the, yeah. that stuff. It's just they can't show that stuff. Okay. It's bad. It was, a, it was a pornographic culture beyond belief. And um, we are justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. So that's a future thing, right? Because I've been justified, I will be saved from God's wrath to come. So justification produces deliverance from the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It's judgment. His hatred of sin. We don't understand just how repulsive our sin is to a holy God. We don't get that. I think when we get to heaven, we'll have a little bit of an idea of that. But we don't understand just how bad sin is because we're used to it. Sin is badder than we think it is. It is revolting to God. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. God is repulsed by it. And the wrath of God is God's immediate and automatic revulsion to sin that's in his presence. He's repulsed by it. Think of something that is extremely gross that when you see it you want to run the other way. 
That's me. You know, I, I see, I see something that, you know, I hate spiders. The bigger, the uglier, the worse they are. I can't stand them, all right? Why God created spiders is beyond me. But I'm revolted by them. If you, you want to see me jump 15 feet in the air, put a spider in front of me. That's that yeah. From China. Yeah. From yeah. Yeah. I I jumped 16 feet in the air. You know, they just give me the willies. But that's what got when when you get sin into God's presence, God is repulsed by it, and because of that, His wrath is going to be poured out against evil in eternal hell. We're safe from that. Think about that. We're never going to face eternal judgment. We're never going to face the wrath of God. We're never going to be in a place where His wrath is poured out without mixture. Says. We have been justified. And then, the idea of much more there is not only, and this, this is where the much more comes in. See, if I had just never sinned, I'm, I'm sort of even with God, right? I'm not bad, but I'm not good either, right? I'm just neutral. What does God's justification do for me? Not only does he declare me not guilty, he declares me what? Righteous. Righteous. It's much more. It's not just as if you'd never done it. It's just as if you had done everything God, Christ did. It's just as if you've been as holy and righteous and godly as Christ has been. You don't just get brought up to ground zero. You're getting more than... It's, it's, it's sort of like if I owed a billion dollars and somebody came in and paid my debt and reduced me to zero, that's great. But what God has done, he's not only reduced my debt to zero, he's added another billion on top of it. He's reversed it all the way around. It's not, it's not just he take me back to zero. Much more he does this. Beyond what I could imagine, beyond what I could think. Then in verse 10, we have this argument. It's called the argument from the greater to the lesser. We use it all the time. If I can prove to you I can lift 100 pounds, can I lift the 10 pounds? Gosh, I hope so, right? If I can do the greater thing, I can do the lesser thing. And Paul uses this argument a lot. For if while we were enemies, goes back to first part of the chapter, right? The war's over. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That while we were enemies, that means to be in a state of being God's enemies. It's that you're, that's what you are. You're in that state of his enemy. Um, and the idea of enemy there is hatred between two parties. We just hated God. Now, does God hate the sin and the sinner? Yeah, he does, but we hated him too. But what did God do? He reconciled us. Reconciliation is a beautiful word, katalasso. It means to 
bring two warring parties together and cease the hostilities. God, cease the hostilities. We were brought together. We were brought into harmony. It's like when you reconcile your bank account. You take what the bank says and what you say and make sure that they are in harmony. God took me as a sinner, as an enemy, and he brought me into a place of harmony with him. Now, what's the only way you can be in harmony with God? By accepting him as Savior. But what does that mean about you? I agree with him, but in order for me to be in harmony with God, I need to be righteous as God is, right? How do you do that? The death of Christ. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the sinner. He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, which makes me able to be reconciled to God. What enables me to stand in God's presence? I have to be perfect, right? What's the only way you can be perfect? Well, God's gavel has to come down. You need to be declared righteous, brought into a state of reconciliation with him. How's that accomplished? Through the death of his son. Notice by his blood, by his death, by the sacrifice. How you can read Romans 5 and come away thinking that somehow Christ did not die for you is beyond me. It's like doing uh, Ben's explosion. You ask two questions to the people. You died and if I was asked me, I'd tell God, I said, well, I don't have any really good reason why I should, you should let me in. Yeah, you do. Christ took my place. That's, right. That's the only answer you can give them. It's not because of me. It's not because of my righteousness, right? But I have been reconciled. The, the war with God is over, and I've been brought into a state of parity <coughs> through the death of Christ, who makes me as righteous as he is. And because of that, we shall be saved by his life. So, not only I am saved from the wrath of God, I will be saved in the eternal sense by the death of Christ, by being reconciled to God, by having the war over. And it's all because of Christ. He took my place. So, I was reading It is. Um, probably the best way to understand, and we're going to get that into Romans 6 7. We'll get to it in a few months. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there are basically, yeah, we are. Yeah. There are three aspects to, I think what they're trying to get at, Dave, is there's three aspects to our salvation. One, 
I have been saved from the wrath of God. Okay, so I've been saved from the penalty of sin. When I became a Christian, you were saved from the penalty of sin. All right? But now, as you are a Christian, you still struggle with your fallenness, right? The power of sin. So I am being saved right now from the power of sin. Hopefully as you get older in your Christian life, as you mature, you sin less and less. You get closer to God, maybe. I, that's probably a bad way to put it. But you see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's sanctification. You see God making you holy. But there's going to come that future time when we will be holy. We will get from the presence of sin. So you say from the penalty, the power, and someday the very presence of sin, such that that's, I think, what Paul is looking at here. We have been saved from the wrath of God. We're being saved from the power of sin in our lives. The power of sin is broken. That's six and seven. That's the whole two chapters there. But someday I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin altogether, glorification. So there is a future component. Um, and as far as God is concerned, are you seated in the heavenlies with Christ right now? I don't know. I don't look around. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm seated right now. And I am, but I'm not experiencing right. that, am I? Experientially, I'm not. But someday I will be experientially experiencing that. I will be in God's presence. So there's that future component of salvation that we, that we theologically they call it glorification. We receive our new body. We stand in God's presence. Yeah. And what blows my mind, of course, is Revelation 21:22, where I can talk to God like I'm talking to you. That just blows my mind. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine having a conversation with the creator of the universe. Can't imagine that. But that's what heaven, eternal heaven is all about. And you think, well, you know, there's a lot of people that have conversations with God. Well, there's a lot of time too, right? Don't worry about having to wait in line. <laughs> You're going to be in God's presence. But we're going to be saved from, we shall be saved by his life. This is interesting. How do you know that you're going to be saved, ultimately? Because who's pulling for you? Jesus is. It's his life. Yeah. And it, it, even, it sort of harkens back to Romans chapter 1. How do you know that Christ was the Son of God? Well, according to the seed of David, he was sort of the seed of David, right? He was a human. But what made him, what, what gave you the hint that he was the Son of God? Because he rose again from the dead. That's God's stamp of approval. How do you know Jesus is God? He rose again. He's accepted by God. We shall be saved by his life. And not only this, not only do we have all of this, he just keeps piling it on. You ever have that, you know? You got something good and they just keep piling more good stuff onto you. And there's more. You know, it's sort of like one of those with a by the knives, and there's more if you do this, and there's another, you know, and we'll get, and for, you know, they just keep piling it on. That's, the exceedingly, abundant. That's exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. 
But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, the atonement. We have received what? Reconciliation with God. Atonement. By the way, that's the same word as being reconciled. Catalasso. It means to bring something alongside, to toss something alongside, to, to make it equal, to bring it into harmony with one another. I am in a state of reconciliation with God. The war is over. And by the way, yeah. And that's what it says. We're not boasting in us. You know, you, again, I, I tell you, the more you think you deserve heaven, the least likely you are to go there. If you think somehow you deserve this stuff, you got something off. You're not worthy. You're unworthy. That's the whole point. Christ did it. He died for me. He took my place. He gave me reconciliation. And by the way here, who is the, um, who's the operative component here? Who's doing all of this? Who's accomplishing all of this? God is. Not you. God is. We have this idea that somehow we, we play a role in our salvation. You really don't. In the grand scheme of things, you really don't. I like what Spurgeon says. You bring, to, you bring to the table your sin that God's got to clean up. That's what you bring. He saved us. He loved us. He took the... Christ said, I come to seek and to save that which was lost. I didn't come to seek and save that which is seeking me. <laughs> Early on, we found that, right? How many people seek God? None. Oh, we seek for what God gives us, right? Good, you know, health, all that kind of stuff. But anybody seek God for who God is? No, nobody's looking for God. Isaiah says we're like sheep. We've gone astray. We're wandering out in the desert. We don't. We're lost. God has to take the initiative. Now, we understand, of course, that how do you accept, you accept this by faith. But even that faith is something that God grants to you. But you, do you believe? Yeah, you believe. But why do you believe? Because God opens your heart. God turns the lights on. God helps you understand. He's done all of this. And the point that Paul's trying to make here is that Christ did this when we were his enemies, when we hated him, when we hated God. We were the most defiled, despicable, repulsive beings in the universe. God died for me. He took my place. And if he did that when I was his enemy, what's he going to do now that I'm his son? That's the point. If God died for me when I was his enemy, now that I'm his son, what is he going to do? He's not going to let me down now, right? This is, of course, a scripture you could use when you see witness to people and they say, well, when I get my life together, I've got things i got to clean up in my life. So God didn't intend, you, intend for you to clean up things in your life. He will clean it up for you. Because here's the thing, in your flesh, can you do anything to please God? That's not a trick question. No. Your righteousness deeds are as what, Isaiah? 
Now that's the grossest, most vile menstrual cloth you can think of. That's the Hebrew word. Bloody, filthy, stinky things. They, they You've got to bury them because they're just too gross to look at. That's your righteous deeds before God. The very best you can do is that in God's sight. Because, see, we don't understand just how holy God is. That's our problem. We don't understand God's holiness. We don't. We just don't. We don't get it. All the guys in the Bible that found themselves in the presence of God, what happened to them? Well, they either died or, in vision form, where, where, where they had to be picked up off the ground, right? Daniel had to be picked up. John had to be picked up. Ezekiel picked up. Isaiah, damn me, I'm done now. You don't go walking into God's presence thinking somehow you deserve that. He, he's glad you showed up. We're, we're unrighteous. And look what God has done. He saved us. He redeemed us. He paid the penalty for us. He took my place. It's not just that, and again, it's not just that I'm brought back to a state of zero where my account is cleared, but I've been given an infinite credit balance. Think about that. Your sin is an infinite negative balance on your on your. Um, on your bank statement. You get your, if we had a bank statement, you, know, you get your bank statement from God as a center and it's got this negative balance that you just look at and it's got too many zeros to even think about. And Christ comes along and he pays it all off and you look at it and the negative sign becomes a positive sign. It's not only paid in full, but then you're credited. <laughs> The infinite righteousness of Christ. That's the thing. It's not just being brought back to zero, it's getting this infinite credit to your account. So here's the question Can you outsend the grace of God? If you got an infinite credit balance on your account, can any sin erase that? And you're going to see that in the end of this chapter. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. One of my favorite hymns is grace greater than all my sin. In fact, it's such one of my hymns. And you, I'm going to make an official statement. If I got run over by a truck, I want that sung at my funeral. Write that down. Grace greater than all my sin. We live in this world where we think that I can outsend God. I can do something such that God says, "You know, I, I didn't know you were such a bother. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. I don't think I want you in heaven after all." You can't, you can't outsend the grace of God. And as a believer, you don't want to, do you? But God's grace is greater than all my sin. And by the way, when we were redeemed, what did God know about you? 
He not only knew everything about you, he knew everything that you would what? Yeah, he knew all about the, he said, well, I, you know, I, I know about all those failures coming up in your life. Because why? He's omniscient, right? He knows everything. And he still did what? He still saved you. So can you outsend the grace of God? No, because God knew you were going to do it anyways. Now, that doesn't let you off the hook. Let's not go there. You're still responsible for your sin. But when I came a believer, what amazes me is God knew everything I would ever do. And he saved me anyways. I can't outsin his grace. You say we're responsible to ask for forgiveness? Yes, we are. Just like a parent, right? That, that keeps the relationship open, doesn't it? Well, yeah, Christ, God said he'll, he'll, he'll chasten his soul. So don't, you know, this is not a fatalistic kind of thing where it says, well, okay, now I'm a Christian now, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to go ahead and sin and have a good time. And, no, it doesn't work that way. No. No. Mm -hmm. The lies, the manipulation, and with Jacob. <laughs> Jacob was a conniving. He was and Jacob was the guy you held your, your hand on your wallet when you shook his hand. And, and yet, they were acceptable in God's sight mm -hmm. because they believed God. Yep. God saved me not because he wanted to fulfill me. It's because it's sort of like uh, in eternity, you know, as a holy angel, you're thinking, well, what is this grace business? And you ask God, you know, well, explain grace to me. He said, well, look at Schaefer over there. He's here, isn't he? I'm an object of his grace. I'm a trophy. Paul says, if God can save me, he can save anyone. I'm the first of all, I'm the worst of all sinners. God saved me. And it's just like God, here's, the, here's what I, going back to our Sammy's prayer request here. It's just like God to save the worst people, isn't it? Now, we don't like that idea, do we? Smoke them, God. Can I sit on the outside of the city and watch as your fire falls? I want a front row seat. Really? We can be saved from our sins Christ's blood and through Christ, but many times we still have to pay consequences. We do. Oh, there's consequences. Was David forgiven of his sin of Bathsheba? Yeah, but then you have the whole... His daughter was 
raped, his son died. I mean, this was not this was not without consequence. Chased out of the city by his own son. This was not it was just not without consequence. Back to Romans 5 8. God demonstrated his love for us. This is beyond what we can talk in, I think, Philip. Yeah, when well, I'm. He yet sinners. Along the same line of thinking, if you check which light in the LSB, when you have the word saints, the center column reference that is the alternative translation holy ones. Hagias. We are holy ones. You are holy. You're the holy ones. Ones who are holy. Yeah. But I'm with Dan. I mean, you know, on many of my walks, I'm thinking, why in the world would God have ever chosen me? And I can't come up with an answer other than just, wow. And I like what MacArthur said. I'm going to take my pardon and run. I'm not going to question it. Why me? Why did you do? I'm going to just thank God that he's pardoned me. That's an interesting thought. That I've had times where I, someone, I love some, somebody comes to the church who I've known way back, hadn't known them for a while. But now they come to the church, maybe except we Christ and they're Christians. It's like, oh, really? I know what they were like mm -hmm. before. <laughs> but, but yet now I have to accept them as fellow believers. Well, I believe they're here. They probably think the same about me. Yeah, what are you doing here? Well, again, you know, um, it's... The longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm amazed at God's grace. To people that I don't think deserve His grace, but He gives it to them anyways. And it's just like God to do that. You know, and again, I go back, I remember many people in high school that I wouldn't have given you a dollar on them being a Christian. They're the strongest Christians... Now, and the ones I thought were going to make it are have crashed and burned and blown up on a freeway or a runway. They never did get takeoff speed. Um, that's just that's the way God's grace operates. God saves the unsavable, the the worst. You got a Naaman. Who was Naaman? The captain of the army of the Assyrians. And yet, what did God do? He saved him. Well, that's not right. There's a lot of Israelites down there that are better than Naaman, and God says, I have a right to show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Rahab, there's, a, there's not somebody you want to put as a role model, but yet what did God do? God saved her. She became part of the Messianic line. Go figure that one out. His grace has nothing to do with what we deserve. No, it doesn't. That's the point. And I think every once in a while, God has to bring some cruddy person along that we, we are revolted by, save them just to show us that it doesn't depend on us. Because we have this idea that somehow God, God saves or shows mercy on those deserving of it. The point is, nobody deserves it. The Holy Spirit convicted me because when I was first convicted to pray for Vladimir Putin, 
my initial prayer was, Lord, please save him or kill him. Holy Spirit, it shook me. At least she's honest about it. But the Holy Spirit shook me up and said, nope, take that out, strike that second phrase, yeah. just pray for his salvation. And by the way, we laugh at that, but we all relate to that, don't oh, we? Yeah. Well, that's why I'm laughing, because I would have right. done the same thing. We all relate to that. That's a You have the Jonah syndrome. We all have the Jonah syndrome. Lord, smoke them. And and it's like no, we we are all Jonas. We're, in fact, I think we relate more to Jonah than any other minor prophet. If you really want to put it down, we are we are Jonah relators. And we, and we uh, don't like the idea of somebody who like Putin being saved. In a way. Yeah. Now, it's unfair. Well, I think it's, there's been some uh, one or two of these uh, killers, uh, serial killers, yeah. who have come to the Lord yeah. before, but they still were with the chair. Yeah. But then you think, is there going to be in heaven with me? Yeah. After all they did? Because you know. as far as God is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because of the eternal grand scheme of thing, what's the difference between a serial killer and you, in God's perspective? Nothing. I have a hard time with God's perspective. Right. Right. Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing different. Um, I, you know, you know that I like World War II stuff. You know, and I was watching the. Um, I get when I went to Nuremberg, I got to see where they had the Nuremberg trials. The room there, room 600, I think it is, in the, the Hall of Justice. It was sort of interesting. They have this whole massive display um, there, uh, like a, um, a museum-type display on all of this. And then I went, I was reading some, about some of these guys that were condemned and, and hung. October 16th is a bad day in history. It's my birthday, but it was the day Marie Antoinette was guillotined, and it's the day, it was the date that these guys were hung. And I think uh, the prison there, but but I, I read the um, read the account. One of the chaplains was there. He's uh, one of the cha um, I forget which one it was, and he talked about some of these guys. And I was reading along his, uh, his account of them, and he seemed to indicate two or three of these guys actually became believers. I'm thinking, and don't quote me. It's ancient brain cells. I think Ribbentrop was one of them. He was one of the top Nazis. He thinks he might, he really was, he said, you know, before he died, he read his Bible and wanted to, you know, take communion and everything else. And there's a couple other ones that were sort of the baddies. And I'm thinking, no, that's just like God to save those two guys. Now, from the human perspective, what do you want? I want them to suffer. In fact, I like to, you know, I like to spend, a, you know, a few hours watching them squirm in the fires of hell. But that just shows the wickedness of my own heart. Maybe at least for a little while. Yeah, that just shows the wickedness of my own heart. God saved them, and God saved the Assyrians from destruction. Why did He do that? Because He is a God of grace. And Jonah wanted to watch them burn. Apparently, hopefully, when we get to heaven, none of those things will bother us. 
None of those things will bother us because because here's what's going to happen when you get to heaven. You're going to be so overwhelmed. Why in the world am I here that if somebody else is there, that's not going to be bothering to you? Because you're going to still be trying to figure out why you're there. You're not going to, it's not going to bother you that somebody else got in. We're not going to be sitting there saying, well, why is he here, Lord? Because he's going to say, well, why are you here? Since David says, you're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. So when God looks at me, he has to look at me through Jesus. Therefore, I am pure through Jesus. Without Jesus, everybody, everything has been born in sin and yeah. shaped in so the thing to ponder this week, we're out of time, but the thing to ponder, and I'm not going to get into the next section because it's the next section. No, but think about this. You know, the question is not why does God save that bad guy? The question to ask yourself is why did God save me? And that should force you to just fall down and worship and appreciation for what he did for you because you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. God commended his love to us in that while we were still his enemies, we hated him, we despised him, he died for me. He took my place. He paid the full penalty for my sin. And someday I'm going to be able to stand in his presence holy. And I'm not going to sit there and try to figure out why did God save me. I'm just going to take my pardon and run. Just going to thank you. Yep. Father, thanks for this day and for this word that you've given us. And forgive us for being more like Jonah than any of the other prophets there. Oh, we don't think of ourselves as that. We think we're something good. You saved us. I mean, we're Christians. We, we're in a place of favor. But yeah, if we really stop and think about it, we realize that the only reason you saved us is because of your great mercy. You took our place. You paid the penalty for our sin when we were your enemies. We hated you. You brought us into reconciliation with you. And someday we'll stand holy in your presence. And that's something we just can't wrap our brains around that much. Forgive us for our hatred of other people and forgive us for that Jonah syndrome where we want to see your judgment fall on the unbelievers. We really don't want that. It's not going to be a good day. Thank you again for this time and help us to remember and ponder these truths this week. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.